think more and more, Ian, uh, we're realizing that our value add strategies are, it's just about execution. Like we're not splitting atoms here. It doesn't take a lot of brain power really to, to push rates and, you know, and, and monitor and manage the expense side of things. I mean, certainly we have some expertise we bring to the table, but I think the simplicity of what we do is I think a big takeaway. And this Granite City uh, storage model is what we kind of were able to hone there because that was just the second facility that we acquired. So we're able to take what we learned there and really then apply it across the rest of our portfolio. Um, but again, it's sometimes I feel a little silly when I'm talking to investors and telling about these great returns we're generating, but yet we're not really doing anything like super innovative, super crazy. And that's one of the things we love about this uh, this asset class is, uh, you know, when there's moms and pops running these facilities, they unintentionally or maybe a little bit intentionally leave a lot of money on, the, on a lot of meat on the bone. Hey, everybody, this is the Yield Coach Show, season one, episode 27. I'm your host, Ian Brown. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders and inspirational guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can gain lessons, advantages, and accelerate your own success. Quick announcement, we have opened our doors to outside investors. We'll have offerings for accredited investors coming later this year. If you wish to be included in our list, please email me at ian at yield-coach.com. All right, but enough of that. I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, we have Tom Dunkel joining us today. Tom has 25 plus years of real estate and investment experience. He has a concentration in self-storage facilities. He is the chief investment officer at Bellrose Storage Group, a real estate educator and distressed debt specialist, and he carries an MBA from the College of William & Mary. Thanks for coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So uh, I finally uh, left corporate America 2006 uh, with a bucket of cash, uh, you know, ready to take on the world. And uh, of course, that was probably the worst time in history to uh, to start a real estate career because the next few years I got my butt kicked uh, when the you know, credit markets crashed and the real estate market crashed. And, you know, so yet again, I had, I had to live uh, in a crash situation. So uh, but, you know, I was determined to uh, do it. So I reinvented. Um, it was around uh, 2010 that I, that I discovered uh, distressed mortgage debt. So I started buying uh, distressed mortgages with the last few bucks that I had left. Uh, had some success there. And that's around about the time that I met my partner, Joe Downs. Uh, we've been partners since 2010. And um, when I first told him what I was up to, because uh, he had just gotten crushed in the commercial uh, real estate downturn. I was in the residential side, um, but we met and uh, we were both trying to figure out what the next move was. And so I was telling him about distressed mortgage debt. He said, you're effing crazy. I said, maybe I am. I tell you what, you're a smart guy. Why don't you go, you know, do a little due diligence and we'll meet back here at the bar in a couple of weeks and uh, you can tell me what you found. Because uh, as, as luck would have it, we lived um, in the same neighborhood and there was a bar like right down the block. So uh, meet back up at the bar. 
a couple weeks later, he says, yeah, I think you might be onto something here. And so we literally uh, sat down in a booth and flipped over a paper placemat and wrote out our uh, business plan <laughs> on, a, on, nice. on the back of the placemat. So, over a beer. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so we've been at that business, you know, going on 13 years and, and that business is uh been uh it's certainly had its own fits and starts but uh overall has been very successful and that's given us uh the the capital to to do other things within real estate so we've had a hard money lending business uh we had a title company for a period of time we did some uh fix and flip uh residential properties we've done some multifamily uh but around about 2017 2018 we we started looking into self storage and the light bulb just really went off for us. Uh, we we just really liked self-storage for a number of reasons uh, we can get into later. But uh, we decided, given uh, how great we saw uh, self-storage able to meet our investing goals, um, we decided to shut down the hard money lending business. We decided to get out of the title company and et cetera, et cetera. So, so now we spend... Uh, at least 95% of our time on self-storage. Uh, we've built a great team around us and uh, we're just really excited about uh, how we're poised to take advantage of the uh, self-storage market going forward. Yeah, that's exciting. I like that you've been through, really through more, really through two cycles. So you got like the kind of the dot-com technology bubble and then you've <laughs> got, of course, the fall of 2008. And um, mm -hmm. well, and today's no picnic today, either. Today's no picnic, you know, and I think I feel like a lot of people in this in in the syndication space, capital raising space, you know, to have to have at least one cycle under your belt isn't super common. I mean, a lot of the people that are nothing against boot camps and multifamily syndicators, and I mean, I do I do some multifamily, um, but a lot sure. of them haven't had to weather. They don't have any like applied knowledge of what it was like to have you know the underwriting of your loan changed at this at the same time that your rents were falling at the same time that your deferred maintenance was hitting at the same time that you were ballooning so i was appraising commercial real estate straight through that that downturn and um i was young um i was in my 20s but i'm with you know grown men that are crying with me and i'm just the field appraiser going out to inspect their hotel or golf course or apartment you know we had to do everything as appraisers and i'm like it's it's sure. funny because it's made me so it's made me so cautious. Um, you know, I've done well in my investments, but I think it's largely because I just started with like so much pain and suffering or just interviewing people that were doing so poorly. So I think for someone like right. you to have like worked through that and, and and now when you take on other people's money, you can explain, well, here's what I do when things go wrong. And here's how, you know, here's what, why I have the perspective. Here's why I'm a problem solver. Here's how we're going to get through it. So, um, yeah, because I, so I'm 40 and I'm just barely old enough to have, had any meaningful real estate experience right before the turn. So I, I did get about a year of appraising right. proposed hotels on non-recourse, roughly 90% LTV hotel loans, you know, where, where the developers getting, you know, the, the new Mercedes on the first construction draw. And uh, even at that young age, I was like, there's, there's no way this is, <laughs> there's no way this is good. <laughs> um, yeah. But let, let's jump, let's jump back to you. And I like that you did the, the lending side and mortgage side, but, and, and it's funny, we both, we do share one other thing too. I just stopped in, um, around January of this year, I ended my seven years of title and escrow. Um, I, I'm not saying I would mm. never do it again, but, um, I'm a Florida attorney and that's yeah. one that's, it's kind of my core service as a, 
as a Florida attorney. It was okay. a lot of my friends in real estate. It was something I could do. It kind of kept me in some of the deal flow, but I don't blame you for getting out of title and out of lending and, um, and, and into investing. Um, cause that's, that's, that's what I did six years ago and have not regretted it a bit. Um, and we did, you know, I, I think you, if we, we can talk about it if you want, but finding opportunities through the distressed debt markets, I don't know if you, it's kind of hard to find distressed debt at this moment, but obviously that could happen. That likely will happen again. Um, have you done anything? Have you pulled deals from distressed markets? Uh, have you pulled deals from distressed debt? Uh, we re we really haven't. Um, we we got into the notes business because we didn't want to own the the bricks. <laughs> so we uh, in that business we try whatever we can do to to not take over a property. Uh, now we do have some commercial loans, and um, you know we've been able to. Uh, we don't you know we're not taking over businesses certainly because again we we like the paper on that side of the world. So uh, but we are we have been able to do some pretty. Uh, advantageous workouts and things like that. Um, one thing to note though is uh, self-storage is the lowest uh, defaulting uh, asset class out there uh, in commercial real estate. It's, it's, it's virtually zero. So I don't think we'll be seeing any uh, self-storage deals coming up uh, in, the, in the REO world. But uh, that's not to say that self-storage is completely uh, you know, pandemic and uh, recession uh, proof. It's certainly pandemic and recession resistant, uh, and that the numbers prove that. Uh, but it's it's not a, it's not the kind of asset class that that defaults, which I think gives our investors a nice uh, you know warm and fuzzy feeling that at least they know that it's it's going to be you know their investments going to be pretty safe with us. I think that's a good segue because you know your company, just from what I see on your website, concentrates in storage. Um, let's jump into why you like that asset class i can i can tell you that although i don't own any of it i am drawn to it just because it is the polar opposite of trying to pull off a value-add multifamily deal you know um and and i'm in jacksonville and i had at one point i think i had like 20 section 8 tenants which might not sound that high but in a small portfolio i'm juggling section 8 and renovations mm. and I'm like, oh my god! I just want, I just want some storage. <laughs> I just, That's... I want, I want something <laughs> with, with like no toilets. I think I saw right. that on, on your website. Uh, but yeah, let's let's um, let's just talk a little bit about store self storage as an asset class, and I'll, I'll let you run. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, Section Eight world is is brutal. I used to live in that. I probably one of the happiest days of my life was selling my last uh, rental property. <laughs> so that was great. I wonder if I wonder if you know Brian Scrone down there in Jacksonville. The name doesn't sound familiar. Um, I, I was a naive, uh, you know, early 30 year old. I was like, oh, you know, I, I was, gotcha. the, the price per unit was good. You know, it was a third, yeah. a third of replacement costs. I had Section 8 tenants. I had someone that I thought could manage it. And I just, I just yeah. went for it. But no, if he's, now, if he's uh, good at what he does, I probably don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I feel the same way. I mean, there are some people who are really good in that world. I was not. And so when I found storage, it was, it was like, you know, the sun, you know, rising and the angels singing and the unicorns you know, flying around, you know, because, you know, you don't have the craziness with the with the tenants. Um, you know, there's there's no plumbing and, you know, issues in all hours of the night. Uh, when you do end up in a landlord tenant situation, you know, it's not that way at all in self-storage. We actually work under lean laws 
not landlord tenant laws. So our, our eviction uh, process is quite simple. Day 61, the tenant gets a notification that their stuff is going to be auctioned off in seven days. And if they show up and pay, great. If not, then we're able to auction it off. And that whole process is very automated. It's all driven. Uh, it's all on the internet. And so uh, it's not like the storage wars uh, show that people like to talk about. It's not like that at all. Um, but that part of the, that's certainly one uh, part of the world that's, that's way better in self-storage. Um, the other one, you know, you mentioned multifamily. I'm actually, uh, I've, I've invested in multifamily deals as a limited partner uh, multiple times since 2013. So I know a little bit about that world as well. Um, and I, and I do like that world. Uh, that's, it's been, I, I've hooked up with a great operator there and he generates some nice returns. Uh, but I do, uh, I do appreciate self-storage because the, some of the challenges that he faces, we don't face. For example, um, we were just talking about turning around uh, a unit, right? We can have a unit cleaned out in the morning by a tenant, and then we can sweep it out and have it up for rent that afternoon. And a lot of times, because demand is is pretty high for self-storage these days, we can not only have it ready to be rented, but we can have it actually rented in that same day. So we don't ha we don't go through an extended turnaround process where we're doing the paint, we're changing out the, you know, the, the countertops with granite, throwing in a new lighting package, you know, doing the carpeting, you know, we don't have to go through those hoops and therefore our, our capital expenditure budget is much lower and our turnaround process is much faster, which creates a lot more cash flow. Um, so we, that's certainly something we love. Uh, another big thing that, that we love in self-storage as compared to, to multifamily, and I'm, I don't want to beat up multifamily because I am a fan but uh, self-storage, our operating uh, profit is generally in the 60 to 70% range, uh, whereas in multifamily, it's, it's the other way around. Uh, it's, it's more like a 30 to 40% range, I think, is, is, is pretty widely accepted um, as the profit there. So again, it just makes self-storage a much higher cash-flowing asset class uh, as compared to, to multifamily. And that explains what we touched on earlier about why the default rate is so low, right? Because there's so much cash dropping to the bottom line. There's plenty of money left over there uh, to service the debt and also pay a nice preferred dividend to our to our investors. No, I think that's a great summary and I appreciate that. And I totally agree. Um, on that asset level discussion, I think there's a perception that storage is owned and controlled by, by the few and um, but I think that's not actually true, right? I think you could probably tell us that there's quite a few quote unquote mom and pop operators. Um, I was looking again, I was on your website before this interview and mm -hmm. um, I do see a lot of like single story, um, exterior corridor, more of your traditional sprawling product. Um, and I imagine less of those are owned by REITs or regional institutions. And maybe you could you know, have a chance with cold call or outreach or networking. But if you could, what I'm really getting at is if you could kind of speak to maybe the myth that it's just a, a bunch of very large investment companies that control all these, and then uh, kind of go into maybe how you're sourcing um, some of your deals. Sure. No, you're spot on, Ian. Uh, you're right. The perception is that, you know, CubeSmart, public storage, extra space, you know, those big guys control the market. So there's no room for the little guy, but that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Those big uh, real estate investment trusts only control about 30% of the market. 
there, there are some large regional players that you probably haven't heard of, but are still bigger players. Uh, but it leaves a good 50 to 60% of the market is still, you know, onesie, twosie, mom and pop owners of that single story drive up product that you were just describing and, and not the fancy, you know, class A, you know, three, four, five story facilities uh, that, you know, we have frankly have little to no interest in those because uh, there's typically not a lot of value add there and those facilities are very expensive to run. So we do like the, the, secondary and tertiary markets. Um, and we do have a, a really, I have to say, pretty slick uh, internal process for our lead generation. Uh, so we use uh, virtual assistants to, to reach out to the lists that we buy of the self-storage owners. Uh, so the our Philippine-based uh, VAs are smiling and dialing and making you know hundreds of calls a day uh, if they get something that sounds like it, there might be a conversation to be had there, it gets kicked in to our U.S.-based VA, who is a retired uh, sales guy, and he loves talking to people, and and he can sense if there's a deal there or not. And if if he's sensing that there's something warm there, he kicks it over to uh, to my business partner Joe Downs, and uh, Joe uh, has the conversation with him, just trying to see if we can help them out with their facility in any way, or, you know, where are you in the, in the life cycle of your ownership with this, with this facility. And so at the end of the day, we're probably uh, looking at over 50 facilities for each one that we acquire. Um, so we we're very disciplined and very strict about our acquisition criteria there, but we're generally looking very much like multifamily, right? We're looking for those markets that are growing, uh, the population's growing, the jobs are growing, there's infrastructure investment going on there. Um, so we look for all those things. And then, of course, we're looking to make sure there's not too much competition um, in that market as well. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of markets where it, it's just been way overbuilt with self-storage. Uh, but then there are other markets where, uh, for whatever reason, there might be barriers to entry to developing self-storage. And so those those areas um, might be undersupplied in in storage. So we like to like to find that. But we do a lot of research in the market uh, before we're even really uh, looking at specific facilities. And I can attest to Northeast Florida. We have IL uh, this light industrial IL zoning. You can you can do it in HI, and you can do it in a PUD, and then you know you could. Um, you can do it in CCG too, but the, my point with that is, especially the industrial zoning, it's hard to come by, and it's going away because if it's in a kind of a, a transitional area, it might go multifamily or it might go general commercial, and then, and we're not rezoning much property in Jacksonville to that light industrial. I'm not saying we're not doing it at all, but to your point, uh, we're getting about thirty thousand people a year moving to Jacksonville, a lot of single and multifamily development. And you're going to you're going to smile because you know this already. But these new communities, whether they're single, multi towns, whatever, they don't allow you to park your boat, your RV, your oversized vehicle, your work truck. And I know this is more surface storage is actually a question that I have for you. But mm -hmm. it just bodes so well for storage, you know, because people that are in different phases of life still still need the storage. It could be it could be they actually lost their home or primary residence and they still need to store some belongings. It could be a downsize. It could be 
you're retiring, you want to drive your RV for a year and you want to put, I mean, it's just, it's almost endless, the, mm-hmm. the reasons why you might need it. Um, and as a culture, um, Americans don't like to let things go. We hang on to stuff. <laughs> so we, we store it. But um, I completely agree with you that, um, you know, you see this kind of proliferation. I'm in Florida, so we have so much positive migration and home building. It, mm-hmm. it is it is stalling a little bit right now, but really just over interest rates and construction prices, there's still lots of people coming here, even after the hurricane damage. Yep. Um, but you just don't see like the pro rata or requisite uh, stores being constructed. And if you do, it is your interior corridor climate control, the things we're used to seeing coming out of the ground. It's on, you know, like an acre and a half, three, four, yep. five stories, um, that kind of stuff, which um, I know I just, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I do have a question. I think it would be <laughs> You're, buy, you're buying more of like your sprawling single story product that we've all seen kind of growing up. Why do you like that over the interior corridor towers? I know that I do know those are expensive to build. I don't see people constructing new what you're building. I would imagine the price of land makes it hard to do that. But if you could just um, mm-hmm. maybe opine a little bit on why you're buying the type of self-storage you're buying and then where is the value at? Sure. Yeah. Uh, we do buy uh, our, our primary buy box right now is buying existing facilities uh, in secondary and tertiary markets um, where there is a lot of value add. And, and the, we touched on the moms and pops earlier. You know, the, the moms and pops, you know, their whole mission in life is to keep this facility full. Right. And so they artificially keep their rents low. Right. Because they want to keep those units full. And they they let people go with delinquencies and that sort of thing, because, again, they're moms and pops. They're not professional self-storage operators. So the last thing they want to do is, you know, implement the technology like we have where you can rent a a storage unit from your smartphone. Uh, They don't want to do any kind of marketing, any kind of outreach. They don't want to deal with the turnover of the units, even though it's quite simple in self-storage. They just want the units to stay full. So the facility that we just bought last week, for example, um, in upstate New York, classic situation. The owner is 83 years old. Um, he's he's got a place down in Florida. He just wants to you know play golf. He's he told us he said that he's happy with the amount of money that's coming in each month. So he doesn't want to rock the boat there, right? So he's he's okay, and he knows his rates are low. And so he says, you know, you guys go ahead and push the rates, and you know you you do what you're gonna do. I'm happy with how I ran the facility. And he had his daughter there and was overpaying her as a manager, you know, just all those classic things that mom, moms and pops do. So we that's one of the first things we look at is we want to make sure that the the rental rates that they're charging are well below market. So in this case, they were 34 percent below market. Uh, a lot of deals that we see are 20 percent below market, 25 percent below market. It's and again, it's because these moms and pops, they just. They don't want to deal with it. They're happy with how things are running and they, they don't want to rock the boat. Um, so that's why we like those mom and pop, uh, you know, single story, what we call first generation self-storage facilities as compared to the, the newer, uh, you know, multi-story facilities, you know, those are typically professionally run. That's most likely going to be one of the real estate investment trusts uh, running that facility. Uh, and even though I don't, they're not super great at, at, managing the facilities, they're, they're really pretty good at it. So the value add there is kind of minimal. And for that kind of facility, you know, there's a lot more upkeep, uh, you know, the elevators, 
uh, break. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot more, uh, uh, you know, work that needs to go into keeping that facility up and running uh, smoothly. So that's why we, and, and those facilities are typically more in the urban and suburban areas that are super high uh, priced as, and don't really meet our acquisition and return criteria. So that's why we steer, steer clear of those. Uh, as far as building and developing, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, again, back to the secondary and tertiary markets, you know, the land out there is, is uh, lower cost. And so we're able to build facilities out there. Um, what, for example, in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, right now, we're doing an expansion. And uh, so we're do- building some ground up uh, new buildings there. Um, so we're able to do that relatively uh, inexpensively as compared to those, you know, multi-story. I mean, that's, you know, you're really getting to in the big dollars there. Um, and so you, it, it's a careful balance between that that supply and demand and the cost and the returns. So what we found in our company is we we prefer to buy the existing facilities that are mom and pop run where there's the value add components and maybe there's some expansion. Uh, but we've to, to date, we've steered clear of the of the peer development. It's something we're going to look at later on after the uh, supply chain issues kind of resolve themselves and after the financial markets kind of cool off a little bit. I think we're going to we're going to be looking at that as the next uh, phase of development for Bellrose Storage Group. And um, I would imagine the you know kind of like multifamily the the lending environment might be might be you can correct me. A little more favorable if you're doing like your cube smarts and your interior corridor climate control stuff and maybe a little better ltv maybe a little bit lower rate maybe some more non-recourse debt but it seems like you're able to completely that's that's almost irrelevant because the returns you're able to achieve by by moving rents like you just said 30 something percent um it would it would be you would never come across like a cube smart that especially if I believe it's being run by algorithm or being checked almost every day and they're changing their prices um, internally almost every day online. So the odds of you finding a professionally run franchised interior corridor project, there's just not going to be any meat on the bone. Right. Right. And, and, you, and, and you're right on, they, they do what's called dynamic pricing, right? So the, that unit up in the back corner on the fifth story is not, is going to be priced lower than the unit that's right inside the door on the first floor. Hmm. Um, what kind of, what kind of, um, I know it's a funny time to ask it. So we're recording right before Thanksgiving. Um, this episode will probably air a little bit closer to Christmas, but, um, look as, as of now, maybe not so much rate per se, but what kind of, what kind of LTV did your company enjoy in the lending environment since you got hot and heavy in storage, uh, sounds like maybe five years ago. Yeah. So, uh, it's interesting, Ian, we had, uh, uh, we had, got a, a, a loan commitment for a deal that we're closing here right after Thanksgiving. Um, it was uh, from a local bank in, in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, where we're, our next acquisition is uh, 5.5%, um, 75% loan to value. And they said that they would be willing to go to 80% loan to value, 25-year uh, amortization. Um, and so really solid terms. We're, we're pretty conservative. So we said, thanks for the 80%, but we'll, we'll stick at 75. But then two weeks later, we got uh, some indications on our next deal, which is in Georgia. And uh, that term sheet came in at like 7%. 
65% loan to value, 15% or 15 year amortization. So all those factors just you know, like hammered our, our modeling and our, uh, and our return expectations. I mean, we're, we're pretty conservative and obviously, you know, we've been around a little bit. So we, we knew that higher rates were coming and maybe some a little squeeze on the LTVs and the, and the term and whatnot, but that, that was pretty extreme. So uh, we've since found better terms, but my, my point is that the, you know, the world has shifted uh, pretty quickly and um, but it's, it seems to be very lender specific. Uh, Cause I think there's still lenders out there that um, uh, maybe are smaller, you know, they, they know their particular market and, and they're comfortable lending there. And it also depends not to get too much down the rabbit hole about, you know, banking and finance, but it also depends on where they're getting their capital, right? Because not everybody's uh, rates have 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 gone up. Um, so they, these banks, the smaller ones, are typically still able to make a spread um, on what they're borrowing at, what they're lending at for their for their profit. But in general, uh, we've had best execution on the lending side from uh, smaller local banks and credit unions. Do you like to use mortgage brokers or do you tend to shop the debt yourself? Yes, we, we actually have a two prong approach there. We do use mortgage brokers because they have those pre-existing relationships and they can go out and um, and grab some term sheets pretty quickly. But then we also do uh, our own homework and we reach out to some local lenders um, in the market where we're acquiring um, and, and see if, if they would be interested in, in financing this our self-storage acquisition. I have a note here that I jotted down before um, we started, and I'm very. I'm, this is per personally, I'm I'm drawn to doing a surface storage deal. Um, really, no improvements. Just you know, stabilize the soil, fencing, some security. Of course, I'm speaking like I've done it, but um, you know, in Florida, we have a lot of boats and RVs, and um, it's more or less a year-round boat and RV market here. Um, and like we said, the, the new home construction and even a lot of the established neighborhoods, they don't want you to have those um, on your on your parcel. So do you have um, do you have anything in your portfolio that is exclusively like oversized vehicles, boats, RVs, things like that? And uh, how do they perform? What are your thoughts on that versus your roll up door single story product that I see is kind of a bread and butter for you? Yeah, it's it's an area of interest uh, of ours as well. Uh, we acquired uh, a self storage facility outside of Baltimore uh, at the beginning of this year, and uh, it was about fifty percent regular uh, drive up single story storage, and the other fifty percent was boat and RV parking. And uh, so we've gotten a, a little bit of a you know learning on the job uh, training uh, with that, and we do really like it. Our operating you know, we we're talking at the beginning about operating margins. Um, our operating margin at that facility is closer to 80% uh, because it just doesn't take a lot of money to keep up uh, a parking lot, basically. Um, so we're, that's an area that we are exploring. Um, I think the one potential challenge there, and again, we're still kind of learning, but is is on the lending side. I don't think the terms are quite as favorable on the lending side because your inventory is li literally on wheels. <laughs> so I think you know, a lot of lenders are, are still kind of getting their heads around uh, boat and RV storage. Um, but it, it's 
it's a it's definitely uh, if you're looking at kind of the demographic trends and you know baby boomers like you were talking about earlier you know driving their rv for a year and you know finally buying that boat and those kinds of things you know it is an area that's that's uh that's caught our eye and it seems like there's a huge demand for it um we I had some preliminary stats that we learned about boat and RV storage where uh, some RV folks will drive like an hour or more to get to their parking place <laughs> because there's just none of them. There's not enough of them out there. And uh, yeah, and the, the ones that are available are they're really expensive or you got to get on a waiting list or, you know, it's a lot of barriers there. I know in my Jacksonville market, so I don't have an RV. We do sometimes rent RVs and drive them as a family, but um, we have a boat and it's currently in dry storage and I have no interest in owning a dry storage marina, but I did have it in a surface parking behind a um, public storage, like in the okay. back. And it, it was so it was so hard to find anywhere within three miles of my house that even had a spot for sure. me. The access was this like quagmire weaving through and it had you know the concrete columns mm -hmm. i'm trying to get my, my silverado with the 20-foot boat weaving through <laughs> and then back it in yeah and then i finally get to the back of the facility and i'm still under a tree <laughs> which is not where you want your boat to be right so i'm still getting co covered in leaves and uh, it's very hard to get to and yeah. it was now this is just my market but it was over a hundred dollars a month just for the privilege of sticking it under somebody else's tree with bad access and yeah. uh, and it was actually and I felt fortunate that I even found the spot and so uh, now to, to your point demand decide it's a good I'm glad you mentioned that the lending uh, might not be as favorable if you don't have improvements they might just view it as land I remember I had a, a friend slash client they were looking to do um, it was like um, five acres of mobile homes all the mobile homes have been removed a few years mm -hmm. ago and then um, in my area you're not going to, you can't really build another mobile home park right now in my area. The zoning doesn't really, it technically kind of allows it, but you try to do it, you're not going to get your permit. It's kind of a glitch, um, but it's kind of falling out of favor in public opinion. So it was five acres, rectangular, you're ready to go, but it was more expensive than I would have thought to just finish clearing the lot, fence it, get some security and like get the aggregate in there to make it stable. Um, so I do think some people maybe underestimate the cost of of a storage yard. Now, don't get me wrong. If you find a perfect square parking lot, well lit and fenced and great. But <laughs> if you're just looking at land, especially land with a little bit of topography to it and maybe some trees, it might cost you more than you think to get that land cleared and stabilized and fenced and lit and ready to go. Um, we noticed that right away. And then when we went to a local bank, they did not like the fact that the business plan didn't have a building. Like They, they even said they would get it might have even been an SBA requirement. I can't remember, but um, if with no like vertical improvements, they they weren't comfortable even doing the loan. They're, or they were going to view it like a land loan, which is going to be just mm -hmm. absolutely horrible. You know, fifty percent LTV right. or something horrible. So, um, I did have a note here, Tom. Um, in light of where we are in our you know economic cycle, I do think you happen to be like in one of the greatest asset classes, and I'm truly a little bit uh, a little bit green with envy. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I did well in multifamily before it was quite as, I mean, it's always been popular, but it wasn't quite as popular, you know, six years ago. It's certainly not as it has been in the past few years. And um, so I almost just got like elbowed out of my own, <laughs> my own industry in a way. And, um, but I, I have always had an eye towards storage. And like I said, I used to do appraisal, commercial appraisal, mostly in my mid to late twenties. And, and they just, 
I felt like they, they didn't sell very often. People would buy them. They'd hunker down or maybe build a little owner's quarter. And, and that could sustain a family or a couple like their, their whole lives. And so I, I wondered what it's like kind of, I, I guess I understand you have like the cold calling and the filtering and getting to you. It, it does, like if I thought about like, could, could I get a few of these in my portfolio? I feel like it'd be a little hard to wrestle these away from owners because it's like a, it's like a little golden goose. And like you said, even if they're 30%, 40% under market, they're full, they live on it. It's probably like fully depreciated, has almost no tax benefits anymore, but have, you tell me a lot of these people take their money in cash and it doesn't really matter what their depreciation is because they're only going to claim so much. And then you got to go to the bank and try and finance a property. that doesn't show all the income. There's, <laughs> that's a whole separate conversation, but it just seems really hard to wrestle these things away from, from um, established owners. Is yeah, that certainly... something that would you concur that they're, they're, they're kind of hard to <clears throat> pull into the pull out into the market? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a little, little art, uh, maybe more so than science. Uh, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head that a lot of the, a lot of the folks that our VAs get on the phone will say, well, I'll sell at the right price. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you hear that all the time. Right. But, you know, we've had deals that have very long gestation periods. Right. So like we'll start, you know, the conversation like the the facility we just bought last week. We started talking to that guy, I think, in January or February. And, you know, it's just a kind of a long, you know, get to know each other, get comfortable kind of process. And, uh, you know, then the negotiation takes a while because, you know, he kind of works at his own speed and, and then, you know, we got to do what we do. So, you know, then we have our due diligence and all the things that we have to do to get comfortable acquiring the, the, the property. So, yeah, it's it, there's definitely some relationship building that goes on there. Um, in fact, this facility uh, in New York, the seller uh, originally got an offer from U-Haul because the facility has a nice size parking lot and U-Haul wanted to come in, you know, convert it to U-Haul and use that space to rent trucks. And, uh, but he's, you know, kind of an old school guy and he didn't want to do business with the big bad corporation, right? So he liked, uh, so Joe, my partner, Joe ended up speaking with him and he liked Joe. He liked our story that, you know, we're smaller and entrepreneurial and, you know, I don't know, maybe reminded him of his younger self or something. And, uh, so it just kind of came about that way. And that's, and that's not unusual that, that we've had several deals that have had that same kind of dynamic where the, the seller just, uh, came to like us better and, and, uh, wanted to do business with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally agree. It's funny that you know everyone thinks like, well, why would a seller let a property go for something less than top, top, top dollar? Well, there's a lot of reasons. You might, just, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Tom might be easier to do deals with than Ian or U-Haul, and uh, it matters. Um, I always try to be an easy buyer. Um, yeah. I try not to throw a fit unless something's really, really a problem. That's right. Um, well, Tom, I want to pivot into what I call the the coach's case study, and you know, do the Coach Brown kind of breakdown of a deal. Um, do you mind running us through um, a sample deal? It doesn't have to necessarily be typical, but r- run us through what a deal looks like. We have the categories of how'd you find it, how'd you fund it, how'd you fix it, how'd you exit unless you held, and was there a lesson or a takeaway? So um, I can help you with those sure, <laughs> with yeah. those prompts again. But <laughs> if you could if you could talk us talk us through one of your storage deals, I think it would be enlightening to have a little case study. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we had a we had a. Um, an exit a little earlier this year that I think 
lines up uh, with that case study uh, outline you just gave uh, really well. Um, so we acquired uh, Granite City Storage uh, down in Mount Airy, North Carolina um, in January of uh, 2021. And we were excited about this acquisition because it was um, a mom and pop acquisition, but not only was this facility a mom and pop, but every facility in the market was a mom and pop. So they were all full, all the rates were low. And so in that situation, if we raise our rates on our customers, then they have a decision to make. They either, you know, go through the hassle of, you know, coming over to the facility, emptying out their unit, moving their stuff down the street only to save like what, five, 10 bucks a month. Uh, so we were actually able to uh, really be the, the leader in that market in terms of you know, driving rates. So when we came in and we, we closed on that acquisition, um, we were really, uh, it was interesting. We, we raised our rates and then, of course, the whole market sees what we're doing and they start raising their rates. So I think we we helped to raise the rates and the, and frankly, the property values across the entire market. Um, so nobody paid us a commission for doing that, Ian, even though we made those guys <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah. But uh, I think it, it just it just was a great um, proof of of our value add strategies. Cause as I mentioned earlier, we do spend a lot of time looking at the market. We do spend a lot of time looking at the competitors. Are they full? What are their rates? What are their rate trends? And so this facility lined up uh, perfectly for that. It's uh, 402 units, uh, which is a decent sized uh, self-storage facility. It was well-located. Uh, it was in really good condition and it was single story uh, like we've been talking about. Um, and, uh, so we, we went in there with our acquisition team, the, uh, you, ac you, uh, asked about funding. Yeah. So I just, just to keep it organized yeah. here. So the, the fine, did it go through your channels of the VA, the cold call filtering it, all the way to, I believe Joe, that's correct. Yeah. Your partner. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, go it goes through your, your process, your funnel, your outreach. That's right. And now how, how did you fund it? So the funding, uh, was, we went through our, uh, we went through a mortgage broker and lined us up with a credit union. So actually, a, I don't know if there's a such thing as a national credit union, but the credit union's based in Minnesota or Wisconsin, and they're making a loan on a property in North Carolina. Um, mm -hmm. So we were able to get um, really good terms with them. Uh, I don't remember them quite off the top of my head, but I, I want to say that the rate was in maybe in the threes, in the high threes back then. I want to say like maybe 3.95, somewhere around there. Uh, no prepayment penalty, which lined up nicely with our strategy of getting in, creating a lot of value in a short period of time and exiting. Um, so that that worked out great. Um, and that was a recourse loan. So we were happy to sign on the dotted line there because we knew there was a lot of value to add there. Like we've been talking about the whole show here. Mm -hmm. On the equity side, we do syndications. Um, now, as I mentioned, this facility closed in January of 2021 we went out to market to raise capital um, in December of uh, 2020. And so before you knew it, we were right in the holiday season, got a little nervous because of course, you know, people tend to shut down for that period of time. But I'm proud to say that we were able to raise over a million dollars in the, in the two week time period, right around Christmas and new Year's, so that we could close on time in the beginning of uh, 
of uh, January. So that was pretty cool. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And not to cut you off, we'll get to that, but uh, is my math right? You did this like uh, like a, a month before COVID or I mean, narrowly before COVID. That's stuff. right. Yeah, oh. a couple months before COVID. That's right. It might have been a tough capital raise there, like in, you know, February or March that, of, the, that, of that year. That's so. true. Yeah. So yeah, it's a good job. So, yeah, we lucked out on that one. And then as far as I call it the fix it. So we know how you found it. You said how you funded it. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I'm sorry. What was the LTV on the credit union loan? Do you remember? Uh, 75. Okay. 75%. So good, yeah, good LTV, good rate. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, fix it could mean a variety of things. What did you do to change to add value? Yeah. So, uh, so we bought the facility uh, for $3 million. Um, at the time, the, uh, the, uh, the net operating income was about uh, $200,000 a year. Um, they were running a lot of expenses through there. And again, they weren't really pushing the rates. They were trying to sell things like boxes and tape and things like that, which we don't do that because it's just, it's more of a hassle than it's worth. It's low margin product and it's just more of a headache. And it requires, you know, the manager to be on site a lot of the time to handle those little transactions that don't make any money. So to us, it just doesn't make any sense. So what we did is we, as we've been talking about, we pushed the rates, but we also uh, implemented um, our, I don't want to say patented, but it's our, uh, our, our uh, value add uh, hybrid management structure. So we really leverage technology so that our, our facilities um, are running on technology. A, a customer can rent a unit right from their smartphone. And so that uh, doesn't require someone on site physically as a manager, you know, all day, every day. So that's a big waste of money. So we have uh, this hybrid structure where, where we have an on-demand manager. Uh, they do act as the call center. So if a phone call comes in for the facility, you know, they're picking up on their cell phone, but they can be anywhere on the planet pretty much and still handle that call and handle that customer's request. Uh, so we were able to do that, which helped us to really cut down on, uh, on the expenses. So over that period of time between pushing, pushing rents, uh, we did add um, tenant protection. So we can't call it insurance because it's not exactly insurance, but it's another revenue stream that we add at, at the, our facilities as part of our value add strategies. Uh, so customers are required to have uh, buy this protection plan. And so that just bumps up the rent a little bit each month. But as you know, you know, some multifamily guy you, is every little bit of bump up, you know, you multiply that across 400 units and 12 months a year and throw a cap rate at it. You know, next thing you know, you're creating hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of dollars of value with just every little, every little bump there. So we were able to do that. So in about 18 months, uh, we were able to take that 200 net operating, $200,000 net operating income facility and turn it into a $300,000 net operating uh, income facility. And so that net operating income expansion um, and a little bit of help from cap rate compression allowed us to sell the facility for $4,795,000 uh, 18 months later, you know, run that through our waterfall and our investors uh, enjoyed a 37% uh, IRR on that project. Wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm going to clap softly because I have a high, uh, high gain microphone, but good job. <laughs> now that's wonderful. Yeah, um, thanks. So on that one, um, what I like about it, well, there's a lot of things that I like, but 
you didn't just, and nothing, I mean, I, I'm a Florida broker too, but it's like, you didn't just call a broker or what do you have? I mean, you worked at it. You found the deal. You teased it out. You said you look mm -hmm. at 50 to every one you might buy. I mean, there's work involved. Mm -hmm. I, hope the audience, I hope the audience hears that. That's meaningful. And then what I, what I like is that by finding it and like kind of taking your time and really getting the right deals, because I'm a guy, I, I would rather buy nothing than, than overpay. I, I have no interest in high volume. I just want to buy the right stuff. Um, yep. That's what you guys, you guys are you're doing. I really like that. And then what I also like is your, your reposition, your value add plan. It's not particularly capital intensive. It's more, you know, managerial value add. And, um, and, and that's really nice too, because you mm -hmm. don't have to worry about like, okay, the bank's going to give me this, my limited partner is going to be that. Do I also have to raise all this rehab money? Um, you know, you, you don't really have to do, it doesn't sound like you have to do that dance as much. So, um, and you have an asset class. I'm falling in love with your asset class more than I already was, which is which is hard <laughs> to imagine. Um, but you're able to own in Georgia and New York, and all, I mean, you've mentioned all kinds of states that are not contiguous on this interview. Mm -hmm. And and you, it sounds like you're able to at least asset manage or like have you know nearly property manage from all over the place. So um, it's that's unique. You can't do that in every asset class. Um, that's right. What would what would you consider in that deal? You know, my last thing is is item five is like a takeaway a lesson would, would you uh, would you consider I, it sounds like it's something you've already done a few times or many times but mm -hmm. what would be uh, a lesson you might have identified from that deal yeah you know I think more and more Ian uh, we're realizing that our value-add strategies are it's just about execution like we're not splitting atoms here it doesn't take a lot of brain power really to to push rates and you know, and, and monitor and manage the expense side of things. I mean, certainly we have some expertise we bring to the table, but I think the simplicity of what we do is, I think, a big takeaway. And this Granite City uh, storage model is what we kind of were able to hone there because that was just the second facility that we acquired. So we're able to take what we learned there and really then apply it across the rest of our portfolio. Um, but again, it's Sometimes I feel a little silly when I'm talking to investors and telling about these great returns we're generating, but yet we're not really doing anything like super innovative, super crazy. And that's one of the things we love about this, uh, this asset class is, that, you know, when there's moms and pops running these facilities, they unintentionally, or maybe a little bit intentionally leave a lot of money on the, on a lot of meat on the bone uh, for a company like Bellrose Storage Group to come in and, execute our value add strategies and, and create a lot of uh, nice returns for our investors. All right. I, I'm, I'm really liking this interview. All right. Let's um, <laughs> we're just going to run, run into what I call the, the coach Brown breakdown, just a few, just a few things here. And then we'll, uh, we're going to send you on your way so you can get, get to your family. But Thank you. what would be a uh, impactful real estate business or personal development book that, that you would, uh, that you've read recently that you would recommend for the audience? Uh, sure, you can probably see it over my shoulder here uh, is who, not how. Um, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, we love to, you know, kind of smash through walls and do things the hard way, trying to figure out, you know, solving our own problems and, you know, and just, do, you know, we're wired weird that way. But reading this book, Who, Not How, was like such a revelation for me, like, wow, I, you mean I can go find somebody who's an expert or really likes that area that I hate or I'm not good at and they can, you know, for a modest price, they can help me, you know, get over this obstacle or, you know, figure out this problem. So that, that's been, uh, that's been huge uh, for sure. And that was a, a recent 
uh, book that our entire team has now read um, and we're implementing that. And, and that's actually how we ended up uh, bringing on, you know, I've mentioned VAs multiple times in our, in our uh, interview today. And that's one of the things that came out of that is we were trying to do too much in-house, too much. And it was stressing me out, stressing out my partners. And, you know, that's, we're, we're trying to do things better now, uh, smarter, not harder. And uh, so asking, you know, when a, when a question, problem, obstacle pops up, now the question is, who can help us figure this out? Not what do we have to do, you know, or how do I need to fix this myself? It's who do I, who can I reach out to in my network? So that's been huge. No, that's wonderful. And you're right. You know, it's been, and I run a small shop too. And it's like a fire, you know, fire, a metaphorical fire emerges. And you're like, well, I guess I just have to belly flop <laughs> right. on it. You know, it's just me and put it out, you know, yeah. um, no, you, it is. And, and I've read the book. It's a, it's a great one. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's gotta be mm -hmm. on my top five. I love that one. Um, I, I probably because it's really fresh in my mind is I, I, I really enjoyed Atomic Habits. I finished mm -hmm. it like in the past 30 days, but that that's another one thinking about it takes the burden off of you to have to solve all these problems. And then Atomic Habits kind of helps you realize like, you know, these little incremental changes can make a big difference. And, and then you take that with the who not how notion and, it just makes the entrepreneurial journey a little more uh, enjoyable. All right. Now, when you're not crushing these investment goals and, and snatching up mom and pop uh, storage facilities, what do you what do you well, do? Before for we got on the air, I was I was admiring your uh, Fender Stratocaster there behind you. I'm a guitar player myself. Uh, I've got a you know nice little guitar collection at home. So I enjoy doing that. Um, and then uh, my other passion is golf. I've been a golfer pretty much my whole life and uh, had a lot of fun with that. Even if I don't play well, I still enjoy being outdoors and enjoying the nice scenery and hanging out with fun buddies. That's awesome. I'm still, I'm still waiting to break that elusive 100. That, if that tells you. Well, you're in the, you're in the right place right down there. I just didn't have to <laughs> golf around you. Yeah. I end up playing these local real estate uh, scramble tournaments and there's <laughs> kegs every other hole. It's just, it's just not the environment yeah, that I'm right. going to break a hundred. <laughs> um, all right. Now, now lastly, you know, where can people find you? Um, they want to, they want to get to know Tom and they want to get to know your investment. Sure. Yeah. I uh, appreciate it today, Ian. It's been a lot of fun. I'm Tom Dunkel. I'm the chief investment officer of Bellrose Storage Group. You can find us at Bellrose Storage Group dot com b e l just one l b e l r o s e storagegroup.com and on our website i'd invite you to uh log to uh sign up for our investor portal because uh when you're when you sign up as an investor you'll get notifications of our upcoming uh self-storage syndications and we also have an ebook there that i think uh could be valuable for folks who are looking to get involved in you know self-storage or multifamily or other kinds of alternative asset classes uh, I know if, if you're a busy you know, nine to fiver and, you know, you, maybe you're not sure how to look at or analyze um, an alternative deal, um, this ebook gives you a framework uh, to do that due diligence so that you can get out of the stock market roller coaster casino and come on over to the nice cool waters of uh, multifamily and self-storage and other uh, alternative investing, uh, alternative investments. So, Look for that ebook there. It's called the Safe Method. Amen. Yeah, get out of that. Actually, uh, I was looking right for now. This interview again might come out in a few weeks, but uh, 
I think the S&P was down year over year, 15 points on the percent as of today. And you just you just gave your investors a 37 <laughs> yeah. percent IRR. So, yes, exactly. Um, I could go on and on about that. But anyways, I'll leave, I'll leave that alone. Um, OK, well, this has been a lot of fun, Tom. I really appreciate your time. I, um, you know, the audience, we have you're our first self storage guy and you really did a great job talking us through the asset class and and, uh, and your company's doing. Great. Thank you. It's been great, Ian. All right, everybody. Yeah, I really, I really did enjoy it. All right, everybody. This is the Yield Coach Show wrapping up. I'm your coach, Ian Brown, signing off and reminding everybody to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out. <laughs>